0: I'm Shauna Ritter, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Georgianne is the Executive Director of Bloomington Area Birth Services, and is always at the heart of Babs' work. Georgianne Catalona was named the 2011 Woman of the Year by the City of Bloomington. She has been working as a doula and childbirth educator since the founding of Babs in 1994. She was one of the founders of Babs and has guided its development as a vital resource for pregnancy, childbirth, postpartum, and breastfeeding, serving families in South Central Indiana. Georgianne is also a DONA approved birth doula trainer, a Lamaze certified childbirth educator, and teaches prenatal yoga. She is on the advisory board for Health Connect One's community-based doula leadership institute. Prior to her work with birth, she earned her PhD in history from Indiana University. She has lived in Bloomington since 1981 and is married to David Pace, Professor Emeritus, Department of History, and has one stepdaughter, Kate, and a son. Griffin, George welcome to Profiles.
1: Thank you, Shana. It's lovely to be here. Tell me
0: a little bit about mm-hmm. what influenced you to start Babs, Bloomington Area Birth Services.
1: When I think back to our starting, uh, you know what it feels like is that it was a conversation. It was a conversation and being in the right place at the right time. So I had been working on my degree here at IU in history and had been teaching in Women's Studies, uh, back when it was called Women's Studies, not Gender Studies. I taught the introductory class, which was great fun and a lot of pleasure to do. And I was given a fair bit of free reign to kind of explore some issues, you know, as long as I fit what they they needed me to follow. And I would always include a section on um, the medical model of women's bodies and the medical model of pregnancy, those kinds of things. So I sort of got intrigued. I've always enjoyed biology and medical stuff, reading about it, and it was wonderful to kind of get to look at this. And one of the things that always struck me was how interested the young women were in this topic. And I began to realize no one was really talking to them about this issue. And I read more and learned a bit more and then just happened to be in the right place at the right time to go to a couple of births, have some direct experience of it, and then get pulled into the birth community in our area. You may be aware there 's a pretty strong birth community here already uh, back in ninety three when when really this kind of began to come together into gel, so it was a local midwife saying, "You know we really need to work on legislation, we really need to look at what 's happening and she said, "You know we don 't need more midwives; we really need women." to go with other women to the hospital and support them in their hospital births and be there for them emotionally. And that was about the same time that the whole concept of a birth doula began to be. So I connected with the right people. There were some women in the community who really wanted to do this as well. And we came together as a group and began talking. Mm -hmm. Talking led to two of us saying, let's teach childbirth education classes. Because that's how we'll get clients as doulas. Oh, what a good idea! That led to my teaching prenatal yoga, and one thing led to another, and before I knew it, I had an office. <laughs> Things were happening. <laughs> so historically,
0: mm-hmm. is there a precedent for doulas?
1: Or sure. historically,
0: what was of that? Of course, like?
1: of course. Yeah, I mean, we can go back really far. We can go back to the origins of the word gossip. The origins of the word gossip are actually God Sib. According to the OED, which is where I think I got this, and the OED is the Oxford English Dictionary. Sorry, yeah. In the concept of a god sib is that these were the women who would be around a birthing woman to verify that this baby was indeed hers, and this baby was born in this community, and this baby was part of the community. So, god sib became gossips, the women. And where was that? What oh, area of the world? Oh, long ago, European, long pre-industrial, long time ago. Okay. Yeah, so I think historically there've always been women around other women in birth. I, I just think it's kind of how it how it goes that it's been women's territory for a long time. And cultures deal with birth in very different ways. And it's been really interesting to me to to realize that we don't experience our bodies directly; it's always mediated by culture. And that's been a really fascinating part of my learning Talk experience. A more about that. Well, let me just finish up here with the with the doula thing for you quickly. And that is that um, – so there's – I think is a precedent of there being women with other women in birth. Mm-hmm. And that as birth moved out of the home and into the hospital at the beginning of the 20th century, then what you see is the more high-tech gets developed, the more you have high-touch gets developed. So that as we've medicalized birth more and more, then there's the need for someone to be in the room who attends to her emotionally and doesn't think about the clinical part of things, which is really not the doula's job, but rather just is with her. So that is, I think, sort of the lineage of it, is that there was a long line of women being with other women in birth. Birth began to be moved in the U.S. out of the home and into the hospital. Mm -hmm. Hospitals took over with birth and over for many complicated reasons, it's become more and more medicalized. And then so you see the need then for someone to come in and be that human touch, that person who's there, an emotional capacity for the woman and Thank her family. You. So it's a support person. Exactly. It's a support. It's purely a supportive role. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, and, and you started you, – that was such an interesting phrase mm-hmm. that you said that women know their bodies only in the context of, of the culture. time that they live in and yeah. in the culture that they yeah. live in. Can you just talk to me a little bit more about that, sure. especially from a historian's point of view? Yeah.
1: Well, I think that um, when you think about the body – Our bodies have a physiology. There's an anatomy. There's a physiology. There's a process that our bodies go through. But we use language and ideas and visuals to ourselves, depending on who we are. If you're more visual, you probably have images of what happens in your body. If you're more verbal, you you spin a story, a tale, an analysis. That's all culturally influenced. That's true for men. That's true for women. We teach children, how to interpret what's happening in their bodies, the words to give to the sensations that they feel. So really, you never experience your body except through the culture that you're in. So when you encounter something like birth, which is a very physiologically driven process, it's not a pathology, it's not an illness. I tell people sometimes the closest thing in your body to birth is digestion. They're very, very similar to each other in that there are the same hormones are used, oxytocin, there's prostaglandins, there's um, muscle contractions that you do not have conscious control over. They're things that just happen in the body. There's sphincters involved at the end process, you know, things that are stay closed except when they need to open. They're very similar, digestion and birth. And. I use this because, of course, I am mostly dealing with first-time moms who have never experienced birth before and are desperate for some way to figure out a way to understand what's this thing that's about to happen to me. So we, you know, every time has its explanations and its stories about what's happening with the body, how to deal with illness, how to deal with um, with wellness, uh, what, to, how to interpret normal processes in the body. Thank you.
0: Yeah. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm your host, Shauna Ritter, and our guest is George Ann Catalona, Executive Director of Bloomington Area Birth Services and the 2011 Bloomington Woman of the Year. Um, how does your, the way your mind work as a historian, how does that influence the way um, that you have developed Bloomington Area Birth Services? Is there a connection
1: mm-hmm. between them? I would say probably in my understanding of how institutions work and my willingness to be flexible and not rigid in my understanding of what's happening in any a given situation. So I think historians learn to think uh, critically and they learn to weed out what's really the priority in the moment, what's the impetus behind something moving forward in a culture. Uh, How do people approach an institution? Um, Those kinds of things, I think, gave me some confidence in understanding that individual women going into the hospital to have their children, they are individuals and the institution has its own purpose and its own thing that it's going to do. But we'll be constantly encountering other individuals as we go through the process. And those relationships are key to how successful, how rewarding, how the woman feels about things, how that family feels when they come out on the other side of it. And I think having had some Time as a social historian, as someone who looked at family history, as someone who looked at the history of women, women's bodies, women's sexuality, and how that interfaces with the larger culture, it kind of, I don't know, kind of, I think maybe helped me feel more okay about this role that I was gradually coming to assume. I mean, I think I went into the work with a passion for birth and with a passion for I want women to be really happy as mothers. I want them to come out from their birth experiences saying, that was the best day of my life. Yeah, sure, it was hard. Yeah, some things happened I wish hadn't happened. But man, that was the best day of my life. And the best part of it was I got this amazing baby that's so brilliant and so beautiful. And I had this great support team. That's how I want every woman to feel on that, on the other side of that. So that's what took me into it. And it's only over time that I began to realize, oh, wow, this is really a fascinating, complicated process. It's not just that woman and what she's doing. There are all these other trajectories and things going on and agendas and whatnot. Wow, this is really interesting, endlessly fascinating. So
0: what do you think were some of the causal factors Mm -hmm. behind birth becoming medicalized, as you said?
1: Well, I think the story that's most often told about this is uh, the way that uh, who we call doctors, medical doctors, allopathic doctors uh, uh, began to carve out the territory for themselves as uh, that that was going to be the prof- – their profession would include obstetrics. So there was – in the United, and just speaking of the United States, I mean, there are similar stories with variations to be told in, in other countries as well. But in the U.S., it was at the beginning of the – 20, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, uh, and it was a per, in, in part, and this is only one piece of the puzzle, driven by um, the profession trying to carve out that space for themselves. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily a bad thing. You realize that's around the same time, of course, that you know over the early part of the 20th century learning about, and 19th century learning about washing hands and beginning to understand germs and all those kinds of things. That's definitely a piece of what brought doctors into having control over what was happening in the birth experience yeah and it took it when did birth
0: leave the realm of the house and enter into the hospital
1: Uh, i don't have a clear exact date in my head that's what i that's what my husband's for is dates (laughs) um i don't i'm not so good with those anymore um but i would say that certainly by the 20s if you think about that, my father was born in 1924, the youngest of 11, and he was the first one born in a hospital, he okay. said.
0: So that just gives us a, a little yeah, bit of a, so, a Yeah, so a, like the
1: 20s, age. the 20s, and then really you would, you know, by, and depending on how rural an area is, it's going to be different in a city than it is going to be in rural areas. It's going to take longer in the rural areas for that to happen because of transportation and such, yeah, and facilities.
0: So help me understand a little bit, Mm -hmm. too, about the politics, if you would, behind why certain states recognize Mm -hmm. um, certified midwives. We're talking about certified professional midwives um, as having the right to deliver Mm -hmm. either at home or in the hospital and why other states don't.
1: The way that it happens is generally a very successful consumer lobby and the support of key people in legislative positions. So if we look at the states where um, certified professional midwives, so to clarify, those are midwives who are not also nurses, that's to distinguish from certified nurse midwives. Um, The states where that has happened are states where opposition has been uh, from sort of who you would expect the usual suspects, the hospitals, medical associations, sometimes the nursing board, sometimes trial lawyers, very, I mean, variety of hospital associations. But what pushes it through in spite of that is consumer interest lobbying and the dedication of some legislators to really say they really want to see it happen. What motivates those legislators is public health. What motivates the consumers is wanting to have the right to have options. It's as simple as that. So talk to me a little bit about the history of midwifery in Indiana. Ooh, let's see. Well, I can only speak really to fairly recent history in Indiana. Um, I got involved in the home birth community around 93, and there were a few midwives practicing. I was impressed at their training and their ability, that they seemed to know what they were doing. And I say that knowing that, of course, you can think, well, what did I know? Well, okay, not much, but I'm, I think, a fairly smart consumer. So I could judge probably as well as the next person, just ordinary person watching. Mm -hmm. But they seem to be able to handle the trajectory of the birth. And if complications arose, they seem to understand what was normal, what wasn't normal, and what needed transfer of care. So risk management seemed to be what they knew. And that seemed pretty smart to me. It made sense to me that um, people would be at home instead of in the hospital um, because, well, you're immune to the germs in your own house. This isn't an illness, And if you felt confident enough in it and were willing to take that level of responsibility, because it is a lot of responsibility to take, then it made sense to have that option available. I think midwives in the area have always been underground uh, because it is illegal uh, in the sense that it's not, let me be clear, it's not illegal to have your baby at home. The Indiana Code does not legislate where you have your child. And that's, I think most people would agree that's how it should be. Um, it does not do anything other for that life experience than it does for any other life experience. It licenses the caregivers, right? So if you're a nurse, you have a license. If you're a doctor, you have a license. If you're a nurse midwife, you have a license. But if you don't have one of those credentials that has a kind of expected path that leads to a certain level of education uh, that is recognized, then there isn't a license for you to do what you do. There is a national credential, and then states license, choose to license or not license and therefore recognize or not recognize that credential.
0: And how has BABs been able to influence policy around birth in Indiana?
1: (laughs) Oh, what a great question. I love the idea that we have been able to influence (laughs) policy. (laughs) Um, So at Bloomington Area Birth Services, we really operate on what you might call the doula model. So we try very hard, and I'd like to think this is part of the sophistication and growth of our organization, is we try really hard to meet people where they are, not tell them what they should or should not do. Okay, Okay. So if someone comes to me and says that she's going to have a highly medicalized birth, that she needs a C-section, then my job is not to say, well, why would you do that, but rather to say, tell me more about that and how can I help you? So that means then I become aware of what all the needs are. Then I turn around and I look at who are the other providers in the area, and this is where your policy question comes in. Then how can I make sure that she has as many resources as she needs no matter what her agenda is, no matter what her trajectory is, no matter what her birth plan is? So then we look to things like are there resources for um, getting the information you need? So, we provide childbirth education classes, but we also give people the tools that if they 're not taking our classes, we have a lending library. Come borrow books from us, come check out our blog, you know come to our website, call me up, and say, "What do you need?" You know Tell me what you need um, if um they are uh, looking for resources about something's going on, they have sciatica or their lower back is hurting well we've made it our business to know who does that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Let's look at areas like postpartum depression, perinatal mood, and anxiety disorders. We helped found the Postpartum Depression Task Force of Monroe County. So in doing that, we helped create a space where there can be a conversation about, are there enough resources for people in town? Uh, in our area, in our region. We generated and created the Babs Lactation Center to fill in a gap in breastfeeding resources in our community. So by doing that, we put a spotlight on some things that are previously hidden or not really brought to light before. And then there's this kind of conversation that happens. Uh, Conversations turn into agendas. Agendas turn into policy. And that's been a really sweet thing to be involved in. Um, One of the great things um, that's happened – I mean, I am currently not going to births myself, but what what has replaced that is my helping to gestate and birth other things (laughs) (laughs) like the Lactation Center and like the Postpartum Depression Task Force and going and being involved with things like the Community-Based Doula Leadership Institute or going to Indiana Perinatal Network meetings and helping to say like, okay – um how can we attend to the needs of new moms in our in our state, in our community?
0: You're listening to Profiles on WFIU with our guest, Georgianne Catalona. Um Georgianne, one of the songs that you chose as being one of your important pieces of music is George Harrison's I've Got My Mind Set on You. Why did yeah. you choose that?
1: <laughs> there are several reasons. One is, well, I love George Harrison. And that song takes me back to my stepdaughter's childhood and um, listening to Cloud Nine on cassette tape um, <laughs> in the car and at home and and loving that, um, that particular um, album. Uh, and then also the words to the song, uh, the I've got my mind set on you, the The idea that it's going to take, um, you know, time and patience and money to, you know, to get where you need to go to get what you want kind of a thing. And it's kind of been my byword in Babs. I've kept my eyes on the prize, as it were. A very long time ago, I set a five-year uh, agenda. And uh, I, I've had my mind set on that agenda for a long time. And it's taken a lot of time. <laughs> it's taken a lot of patience and plenty of money. But um, we're, we're getting there.
0: We've been listening to George Harrison's I've Got My Mind Set on You, and you're listening to Profiles. I'm Shauna Ritter, and our guest is George Ann Catalona, Executive Director of the Bloomington Area Birth Services and Bloomington's 2011 Woman of the Year.
2: Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922. With residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.
0: George Ann, in your Woman of the Year speech, Mm -hmm. you spoke passionately about the notion of how important that time of the birth is and how mothering the mother could address many of the issues we deal with as a society yeah. that we struggle with could you talk a little bit about how mm-hmm. how you see that connecting and
1: mm-hmm. kind of what's up with that yeah what's up with that <laughs> well we can address it on a very simple level and that is that in the moment of birth a woman is becoming a mother whether she no matter how she delivers no matter where she is and who's at her side I think we all want for her to feel strong at the end of that journey. She's becoming a mother, and especially if it's the first time, I don't want her power taken away from her at any time. She needs to come out on the other side feeling like, I am an adult, I can make good decisions. I feel really pleased with the role of everyone in the room and the role that I got to play and everything. About that, so that when she turns around then and takes on that responsibility, she doesn't feel victimized. Because it's really easy to make the baby then, the one who victimizes her, why did you do this to me, baby? You know, why did it have to turn out this way? Or to be angry at her partner or at someone else on her support team take it out on someone. I wouldn't want her to feel that way. I mean, she's got the right to have whatever emotions she has. But at the end of the day, I want her to feel like I did the best I could. Everyone around me did the best we could. We made the best decisions we could with the information we had. And by gosh, it was fantastic.
0: So you're make the actual difficulty of the birth for those of us who have been through yes, labor. And I mean it's it, not called labor for nothing.
1: Yeah. And I don't mean just the physical part. I also mean the emotional journey. Because It's fascinating to sit down and have women tell you their birth stories and realize that when she tells you her story, she absolutely remembers what people said to her in that room. Okay, so when women are in labor, they're in what anthropologists, I think, any anthropologists out there listening, I hope I'm using this term correctly, in a liminal state. She's in a transition from one state of being to another state of being. So she's extremely impressionable as to what's going on. So that's why doula's are successful at what they do because what we do is we mother her we model for her love relationship caretaking supportive behavior and words and when we do that she soaks that up and what research has shown is that women then in turn take that language those words that I say to her that her doula says to her and she turns around and she says it to her baby women who have doulas and are well-supported in the experience tend to love their babies more, smile at their babies more, report more positive emotions about their babies than and about their partners than women who haven't had doulas. And that's not to say women who don't have doulas don't love their babies. On the contrary, I know they do. I'm with them all the time, and I see how much they love their babies. But it can be even more. It can be even better. And that being better has to do with who is with her in that moment, modeling for her, what is love? I you know. Explain
0: to me what's involved in the training to become a doula. Yeah, of course. So then I can get a better picture of that role. Of course, at the birth.
1: absolutely. So, um, the kind of doula that I am uh, is I'm a doula in private practice. I uh, was trained on a weekend to learn some just basic skills and understanding of birth. And that launched me on a path to getting certified through a national organization, which is Dona International. And that training is the same training that I offer to people. So it's just a weekend. I sometimes do it over a six-week period. So we meet every, you know, once a week for six weeks. And you learn, like, what's normal in birth. You learn what are some strategies for helping a woman cope with birth. You learn how to work with the hospital staff. You learn Uh, What to do in the case of complications, how to support a mom going through complications. What if she has a cesarean? What if it's a scheduled cesarean? You learn to recognize what is normal in the postpartum period. And you learn how to help a woman launch breastfeeding, a successful breastfeeding relationship with her baby. You basically become this anchor, emotional anchor for a woman. Over time, you'll learn a lot of clinical stuff from observation, Mm -hmm. not from doing, and so that you can help people become educated. So on one level, a doula is very much an educator. Um, But primarily, your focus is on emotion. Really, your job is just to be with her. And couldn't
0: a good friend who has some experience Mm -hmm. in that area also without officially being a doula be a doula for you? Yes,
1: absolutely. And what we see in the research that's looked at that is that you see the same emotional outcomes as you do with trained doulas, but you don't see the changes in obstetrical outcomes. So if what you're looking for is... Uh, Not just that she's satisfied with her birth experience, but that she's less likely to have a cesarean, she's less likely to have forceps delivery, she's less likely to ask for pain medication, she's more likely to exclusively breastfeed, and probably a whole host of other minor little interventions or things that might or might not be done. If you're looking for those outcomes, then you really need the trained doula to be there. And part of that, I think, is because when I'm hired by someone, I don't bring emotional baggage from a previous relationship. I have it for close friends, and it is different. It's really different. You don't have the emotional distance, and you really have to consciously separate that emotional stuff from the moment. Uh-huh. That's why it's so hard for family to provide this role because it's their birth too. It's the birth of a grandchild, the birth of a niece or a nephew. I mean you're invested in a different way, and your agenda is kind of hard to keep aside. Yeah.
0: And so before you talk a little bit more about how an optimal birth experience Mm -hmm. might influence later outcomes for that child and that parent, talk a little bit about how being a doula has affected your life personally.
1: Oh, wow. It's changed my geography of the city. I can't go anywhere without thinking about like, oh, yeah, I remember when she was in labor over there. And oh, yeah. Oh, that was so sweet when we were together there. And you know it's like my geography of bloomington has completely changed <laughs> it's it's a very different town to me than it was before it's anchored me to this town in very powerful ways i count every day the blessings of getting to see the babies turn into crawling babies who turn into walkers who turn into preschoolers who are now some of them you know teenagers and getting to like open up the paper and see their accomplishments or you know like wow look there they are and I was there when they were born which by the way their mothers are telling them always and they're rolling their eyes at but that's okay (laughs) it was very important to the mom and I but (laughs) appropriate that it fades
0: for the child so yeah. And now talk to me a little bit about how the impact of of, of a really positive mm-hmm. birth experience yeah. and that very crucial prenatal mm-hmm. moment and postpartum yeah. can influence yeah. outcomes in society in sure. the greater world.
1: Yeah. So 85% of brain development happens after birth. A big way that our brains grow and change is through touch. Babies come out sterile. They have sterile guts they are, were encased inside an amniotic sac. So when you say sterile, you mean... I mean, I mean literally, literally sterile. I okay. mean, literally sterile. No they germs. Come, no, nothing. They yeah, they nothing. come out. Yeah. All things, you know, lined up correctly. That's what happens, right? The exception happens, but generally that's the truth. So they come out and they're put directly onto mom, if everything's okay. When they're put up on mom, what begins to happen is learning and acclimating to being in this world outside the womb. Babies come out, and they need another three months, really. You know, we have really big brains, and we walk upright, So that means we're born three months too early. We're really quite helpless. So when a baby comes out, they're acclimated and prepared for the environment, not of the big room, not of the warmer, not of the blanket, but they are ready to be on mom's chest, to hear her voice, to hear dad's voice, to hear... Other family members to hear partners' voice, other parents, and to look into the eyes of those people and to look for the breast. That's what they're hardwired to do. Any interruption of that has ripple effects down the line. Some of them very minor ripples. Some of them don't matter that much. You get lots of do overs. Babies are very plastic, so you get a lot of chances to do things over again in the first weeks. But really, If everything goes well, it's so easy. They come out, they come on you, you know, they lift up their heads, they look at you, they look around, and they prepare to nurse. Okay, what else is going on? What's going on is mom's touching the baby. The baby is, like, making, you know, neural... Development is continuing in that moment. Colonization of good flora and fauna from mom's uh, body is going on. I just saw that there was something across my Facebook newsfeed that said, why do mothers kiss their babies? Well, the real reason is because when she kisses the baby, if there are any germs on the baby, she swallows them and builds antibodies to them, which she then passes on to the baby. You know, it's like this incredible symbiotic relationship between the mother's body and the baby's body. The more we foster that, then the better everything has a chance of going. Everything. Learning. uh, Walking. uh, Digestion. uh, Everything. Growth. It all is better because of that. Emotional attachment. Yeah, you name it. It's all better. Um, I
0: read, I don't know if it was in, uh, I don't know where I read it, but I (laughs) read that Bloomington Area Birth Services is also offering classes for um, moms and babies together. Yeah. What are those called?
1: Yeah, we have lots of different possibilities. We have infant massage classes. We have—we're just starting up developmental groups, which we're very excited about. And this is going to be run by Amy McKeese and Connie Nelson Laird, where they're going to be coming in and focusing on different developmental stages, and parents can come in with their babies, with their toddler. And they can come to the younger younger than them or older than them. They can choose whatever they fits their needs and learn about the developmental stages that their babies are going through, their children are going through. Yeah, I know um, my kids And we kids have new mother support groups too.
0: My kids are now in their mid and late 20s. And, yeah. and when they were little, we did tons of sharing so that yes, they were always yes. around other kids and yes, moms and eyes exchanging. Yes. Now that I'm a grandmother and uh-huh. my, um, my daughter does not seem to have those same options. It's mm-hmm. not as easy for her to find yeah. – the situations that you're talking about creating at BAPS, right? Right.
1: Right. So we created what we call parent-baby playtime. To be honest, when I first started, I was still so imprinted on academic life, I called it office hours. (laughs) 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 And I sat in my office and said, come hang out with me. And uh, moms and babies would come and hang out. And they were not coming to hang out with me. They came to hang out with each other, which was really what I wanted. And communities began to grow. You're right. Our culture does not really support that I think Bloomington does a fabulous job. You can actually find a lot of possibilities in Bloomington. Right. It's one of the reasons why Bloomington's such a good place to raise children. We have so many possibilities for parents to get out and meet other parents.
0: Well, talking about uh, parents mm-hmm. and children playing, the other song I noticed uh, that you picked is Ernie and Hoots the Owl, Put Down the Ducky. Oh, yes. I love Put Tell Down the Ducky. Tell me a little bit about
1: Put Down I the mean, Ducky. I mean, if you want to play the saxophone, come on. You know, I I love the jazziness of it, and I wish we could show the video with it because I love it, you know. (laughs) And uh, it's also, though, it's about, you know, if you want to get something done, you actually got to put down the ducky. You got to – you have to sort of grow up and and move on. And uh, I'm like, yeah, I guess that's kind of true, isn't it? I hate
0: to bug a busy bird But I want to learn the
1: sax And I need a helpful word I always get a silly squeak When I play the blues Earn
2: to keep you cool I'll teach you how to blow the sax I think I did your problem It's rubber and it quacks You'll never find the skill you seek Till you pay your dues You gotta put down the ducky 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 ducky. Yeah, you gotta leave the duck alone Put down the ducky, put down the ducky, put down the ducky, put down the ducky, ducky if you want to play the saxophone. You didn't hear a word I said, you gotta get it through your head. Don't be a stubborn cluck, any less
0: Welcome back to Profiles with our guest, Ann Catalona. We were listening to Put Down the Ducky by Ernie and Hoots the Owl out of Sesame Street. I'm Shauna Ritter, your host. Ann Catalona is the 2011 Bloomington Woman of the Year and the founder and executive director of BAB's Bloomington Area Birth Services we've we've talked a lot about the experiences and how much babs has grown yes. um over the years in terms of expanding and i know now that you're doing a lot of work with smart start
1: yes Monroe Can you smart start yes talk to me a little bit about how
0: um mm-hmm. how you're working with them and a little bit about how that collaboration goes.
1: Sure. Um, Monroe Smart Start is an exciting new venture from uh, Community Foundation Bloomington-Monroe County and United Way. And from that collaboration has come this focus on birth to five, which is something that we've seen in other communities, and it really feels like the right time for Bloomington to be doing this. It's a coalition, so it means that we're pulling people together to sit in a room and talk about how can we support families on their journey from birth to five I mean, from my perspective, too, it's like prenatal, but it doesn't sound as good to say prenatal to five or preconception to five, so we say birth to five. And their focus is really on making kids ready for school, kindergarten ready, ready to go in and learn, which we know all children are born ready to learn. But how can we really foster and promote that? So they're trying to get initiative starting, and in fact, on July 15th, they're opening the Born Learning Trail, which is at Clear Creek, which is a set of stations where parents can go with their kids and engage in activities prompted by some nice little signs on the trail, which is a great idea. There are also um, a great project, which just got covered in bloom, of the B is for Bloomington book, which is something that we were involved with. So it's an ABC book based on Bloomington, which will tie in well with the literacy parties, which will be coming out in the next year or so. We'll be looking at really fostering parents reading to their children and really supporting parents and knowing how to do that. It's just kind of a, really trying to engage all levels of the community at really looking at the birth birth to five time. And uh, that's, a, that's a great blessing for Bloomington and a wonderful thing for our county to have uh, available to us.
0: How do you um, talk about the services that women need, both prenatally and postpartum and during birth, given mm-hmm. the current climate of the hot issue of health care right
1: now? Oh, man. Part of me is kind of sitting back and waiting to see what's happening, because I think there are going to be a lot of changes. My hope is that cost-saving becomes a really big thing <laughs> because if we really start focusing on how do we save costs in healthcare care then looking at what we're spending in maternal child health is going to be really critical so that's something that we are spending a lot of money on as we've become more high-tech in birth and hopefully we'll be looking at some ways to lower that health care costs of obesity that's gonna that's really putting the spotlight on breastfeeding in a way that hasn't been before and that's going to in turn I think turn a spotlight back on on birth.
0: What does the research say about the relationship between breastfeeding and obesity?
1: Sure. So um, babies that are breastfed, especially exclusively breastfed for any amount of time, but I, I don't have the research right at the top of my head for like what the optimal amount of time is. But the longer you breastfeed, the less likely that child is to become obese in later life. So I know there are a lot of explanations for this, but the one that always kind of made the most sense and seem the most accessible to me is that when you're breastfeeding a child, especially at breast, so um, you are, as opposed to like feeding pumped milk in a bottle, which there are ways to do that to achieve the same goal as well, you can't force the baby to eat when they don't want to. Mm -hmm. So you teach the child, drink when you're thirsty, eat when you're hungry. That by itself is a huge thing. Breastfed babies tend to be leaner, they tend to put on weight quickly and then lean out over the next, you know, 12 months or whatever. You'll see, the, you know, and children are like Christmas trees anyway, right? They go out, they go up, they go out, they go up, right, <laughs> as they grow. <laughs> and we really see that with the breastfed babies. So I see a lot of 20-pound, four-month-olds who stay 20 pounds until they're like 18 months old because they like stretch and grow. And that is a child that's not laying down a lot of fat cells. That's a child that's growing appropriately. The way physiologically we're supposed to. It's much healthier, yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: Talk to me a little bit as well about how you get policymakers interested in birth to five in a state where kindergarten is not required.
1: Ah, yes. Well, we're hoping that businesses and as well as the government will begin to realize that if we want a good educated workforce – we need to be spending more money at the beginning of a child's life than we are currently, that we really need, we tend to to load our money at the end of a child's educational career rather than at the beginning. If we could pay our daycare workers more, if we could really make that a, a profession of respect, if we could really think about how spending a bunch of money to get one child, you know, one child off to a good start, well, that child's going to grow up to be a much better employee, going to grow up to be a much better citizen. So if you look at it this way, everything that that's all the research that's there, all the policy information we have, says that you can tell like by the time a child's in third grade, I think is often cited. But I think there are people who would say you could tell even earlier, like what their successful trajectory is going to be in, in, uh, in school. Not what subject, but rather, are they going to make it to the end? Is this going to work out for them? Are they going to drop out of high school? Well, you, why would you spend your money on them in middle school when, I mean, you should, but you should also really be spending a lot of money on them when they're really little. Get them books, get them good care. Put them in environment-rich situations where they can really learn. I sometimes think about this as it's what I do in some ways is really selfish because, look, I'm 52, right? Okay, so like in 20 years, I'm really going to need very good health care, right? I'm going to want good health care. When I'm in my 80s, I'm going to really need good people taking care of me. So the babies, the children that I've helped families bring Mm -hmm. into the world – I like to think I was creating the workforce that's going to help me as I get older. We should all think that way. It's not just a question of, yeah, I don't have kids in school. I don't really care about that anymore. It's like, well, yeah, but you're going to go grocery shopping and to the bank, and you're going to be hiring a doctor and a lawyer. Don't you want those children who are growing up in those people to be the best that they can so that you have good people to depend on? Well, we can't just say, well, where are those people? No, you have to raise those children so that they turn into those people. That's what, really what we're about.
0: How, does, how do you individually and how does Babs um, deal with the naysayer who says that families just don't care or parents just don't mm. care enough now? Life's changed so much that yeah, yeah. family values are not what they used to be. Gosh,
1: that's so not my experience. That's so not my experience. I've never met a parent who didn't want to do the best they could for their child. I meet parents who have to make some pretty hard decisions. And when you are at a disadvantage economically, your decisions are that much harder. You're going to be making decisions from a place of um, scarcity. That's not good. And I think our goal at Babs is that we – and we say this in our philosophy that we think that families, that women make the best decisions for themselves when they feel really supported. When you make a decision out of a place of feeling safe and secure, you're going to make an optimal decision. If you make it out of fear and scarcity, well, yeah, of course you're going to make a decision that to someone on the outside is going to be like, why did you decide to do that? What's that? I don't get it. And that, you know, it feels because you're not doing it from your strength, you're doing it from your weaknesses. I think our goal should be to make sure that all families, no matter what, what socioeconomic level, no matter what culture, have the opportunity to make these decisions from a place of strength. That's really what we're about.
0: Um, Can you tell me about some of your favorite personal stories about your experiences?
1: There are neighborhoods that I can go into that have memories for me that are layered up from my own playgroup experiences, where I remember our children playing in backyards together where later I return to that neighborhood as a doula, where I get to be in that same neighborhood watching um, a woman labor. There are alleyways and streets in uh, Bloomington where I have walked with laboring women while they were having their contractions while we we're waiting to go to the hospital. One of my f- absolute favorite things to do, to be honest, is to be woken up like at, oh, say two in the morning. My you know phone goes off. It used to be my pager, but my phone would go off. and And that process of like, going like, okay, somebody's going to have a baby. And getting up, and I've usually, if if I've had some advance warning, I've laid my clothes out in advance. I go down, you know, I make myself presentable, grab my birth bag, go down to my car, and that silent drive to their house, wherever it is, where we are going to hang out and labor together. That's a really magical time for me. Um, I love going into people's houses when uh, it's, you know, the mom and her partner and They've been, uh, you know, that that quiet that's in the place or the rowdiness, like maybe they've been watching a movie or they're laughing or whatever. I've had laboring women um, make dinner, like so they're in labor, so they're in early enough labor that, you know, we're just kind of hanging. Sometimes it's at the hospital. Bloomington Hospital certainly changed for me, you know, going into those halls and thinking about all the experiences, lots of layers of emotion and, well... Just stories. So you're creating a picture of
0: where birth Mm -hmm. is a natural part of everyday life. How do you see Babs helping to make that even more apparent (laughs) to folks that birth is not something that happens over here and Mm -hmm. then is forgotten but is rather interwoven into the landscape of our lives?
1: One of my favorite things is to walk into the office and watch the layers there. So we will be having parent-baby playtime, and a pregnant woman's coming in to shop. She goes back to try on clothes, drown a nursing bra. She walks through this room full of women, men, babies, toddlers. She might end up having a cup of tea and stopping and talking and hearing birth stories, which she might not have had a chance to do. I mean, we are normalizing it and the children that are growing up in our community and the Babs community, it is normal for them that women are pregnant and that they breastfeed and that they, um, you know, talk about it. So we have playgroups where – because. They're with the moms that are so um, new, like the baby's six weeks old or three months old or whatever, they're still telling their birth stories over and over again, right? So it becomes normal to tell your birth story. So you tell your child your birth story, and your child gets fascinated with it. I know people who share photographs or video or tell the story. My own poor son has had to listen to his birth story every single birthday, <laughs> But when it becomes just a normal part of it, then I get to see little girls coming in and you know what they play at? They play at having babies. Oh, and that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing at all. Because it means that they understand how babies come about and that, you know, you have they put it slip it under their dress and then they birth their babies. And then you can tell which ones are going to become lactation consultants because they're the ones who are coming over and saying, "Will you nurse my teddy bear for me?" <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. So briefly, Georgian,
0: if you were going to give me the the elevator vision of your future for Babs, what would that be?
1: Oh, wow. That Babs continues to hold a space for women and families, and that we encompass all of the whole trajectory from pregnancy through birth, breastfeeding, the postpartum, and the toddler years, and that we'll someday have a place where uh, women can actually come and have their babies with us, that we hope to have a birth center, actually, as well. So, yeah.
0: Well, it has been a pleasure to be speaking with you well, here on you Profiles. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit, uh, one of my favorite artists, Susanna Baca, yes. uh, La Noche y el Dia, that yes. you chose from Espiritus Vibu, yes. The Live Spirit. What made you choose that song?
1: I use this song when I teach prenatal yoga, and I use it when I teach dancing for birth. And there's something about the fluid nature of the music that makes me want to move and... Uh, It just is very soothing and lovely to me, yeah.
0: You have been listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm your host, Shauna Ritter, and our guest, Georgianne Catalona, is the 2011 Bloomington Woman of the Year, founder and executive director of Bloomington Area Birth Services. If you want to find out more about Babs, you can look them up on the web, Bloomington Area Birth Services, or call 812-337-8121.
2: The program you just heard was recorded in July of 2011. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.